Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop, and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. I spent the past couple of months preparing for a new lineup of podcast guests, and I'm very excited to continue sharing insights and learnings from some amazing leaders who are helping organizations make the shift to product and to technology innovation. Kicking off this new season is Felipe Castro, renowned author, speaker, and trainer on Objectives and Key Results, or OKRs. Felipe helps organizations transform how they use goals by adopting OKRs, the Silicon Valley framework for goal setting. Felipe created the OKR cycle, a simple method to avoid OKRs, most common pitfalls that I have found very powerful and useful in my own work. I know a lot of our listeners are in the process of adopting OKRs, but even if you're not, I think Felipe shares some key ideas in terms of understanding how to connect business agility, the concepts of DevOps, to business planning and customer results. Felipe and I did a webinar back in July where we discussed focusing on outcomes and finding flow. And we built on some of those concepts in this podcast. I'm excited to continue this discussion with him today. So with that, let's get started. Welcome, Felipe. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Thank you. I'm recovering from a case of COVID, but I'm fine. I was fully vaccinated, so I'm, I'm fine. Thank that, you. That is great to hear, even though even though you had the breakthrough case that the symptoms have been mild, I hope. Yeah, it oh. was mild. They were mild. Yeah, okay. So I'm way better than most people look. Thankfully. So, yeah. Okay. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining us in in spite of that. So for those listening, Felipe, I think, has just been this incredible OKR guru who's been publishing some very important guidance. I know personally, I've been trying to master OKRs for 10 years now around, and uh, I've been refining my trying to refine the process for how we do this each year, the structure of how we do this uh, with my organization. And I've just learned a tremendous amount from Felipe in a webinar that we did recently as well. So, some of the, I think, most interesting lessons for me, Felipe, come from you know this intersection of how we shift from projects to products, obviously, but really how we think about Agile, how we think about DevOps. And I think one of the most interesting themes is actually how we can measure both daily work, is the, the outcomes that we're producing for organizations, our customers, and our shareholders, and uh, actually how we measure the improvement of daily work. So, But before we get into that, and I think there'll be some really key topics for us to cover, can you just tell us a bit about how, how did you get here? How did you come to be uh, synonymous with OKRs and, and more recently even with outcomes? So. Okay, well, I'm an engineer by training. So I started my career working with, with startup companies, they're between Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere. And then I completely changed my career. I became a executive recruiter, headhunter. I recruited for, for uh, tech companies, so recruited CTOs, engineering managers, agile coaches, we recruited, uh, what's the thing? And eventually, that got me to helping uh, tech companies uh, set up their people ops, HR management. And that got me to helping them create performance management, improving performance management. And then I I learned that goals are broken, right? <laughs> goals are completely broken. We had technology companies using setting goals the same way people have been doing for decades. And they were actually hurting the company because people were frustrated. Uh, they tried to predict the future a year in advance. What, are my, what is my target for a year from now for a product I haven't launched yet? So they're basically taking a waterfall approach to goals, right? Uh, while they were using Agile and experiments and Lean and, and all of that. So I thought, hey, this is broken. It's not working. And that's when I actually learned about OKR. So, okay, that's an Agile iterative approach to goals. Yeah, that's the solution, right? That's several years ago. And then I jumped right in and then 
I was uh, lucky to be one of the early, a few early adopters of, of that, the early people that were teaching others how to use OKR. And here I am several years later. That's it. Okay. And I'm glad you're here because again, I think there's, there's a lot for us to learn from you. So let's, let's start with the projects, right? I think, I think that's where, you know, you and I kind of connected, which is the fact that we're seeing these organizations structure all of their work, all of you know, development, try to structure innovation uh, in technology, especially enterprise organizations, of course, you know, different and what we've seen from Silicon Valley and we're seeing very different results from companies that, and ways of working that have come from Silicon Valley. But why is it that, uh, in your view, projects are no longer acceptable, acceptable as the way that we actually connect uh, what we build for, for our customers uh, with how we build it? Yeah, the thing is, for decades, the projects have been at the center of how organizations plan. If you think about it, we budget based on projects, we uh, fund based on projects, we uh, staff based on projects. So projects were at the core right, of enterprises and most organizations, right? But now that's not acceptable anymore. Uh, leaders can't take that anymore and employees can't take that anymore. We have many senior leaders, CEOs asking the same question. How do I know if the money investing project makes a difference? People are tired of just saying, yeah, it's a project. At the same time, employees can't take that anymore. They want to know, hey, how do I know if my work makes a difference? People want purpose, right? They want to know they're making a difference. Right? Nobody uh, accepts anymore doing something, just going through the motions, right? People want more of that, a more humane and fulfilling work experience. So if you add those together, like executives can take that anymore and employees can take that anymore, we have a very powerful push for abandoning the whole idea of planning around how do we get here as well? Because I think you, you've you witnessed the evolution of this. You and I talked about some of the, the amazing work and some of the experiences of Christian Idioti around this. How, how did we end up here? How, no one wanted basically activity-based projects that don't drive outcomes. Why, why do you think that we've so many organizations have landed here in this, you know, I think I've heard you say this as well, in this Taylorist way of managing and basically telling people what to do, having them dis be disconnected from it? And, and how, are, how are so many organizations still stuck here? Yeah, the, the thing is, uh, there's a huge gap between the way the best teams work and the way most teams work. So most uh, organizations are still following the project-based, IT-based, service provider way of doing things, right? Uh, uh, Jeff Patton has a great story, he's great way to explain it, is that most IT organizations, they were planned to be, hey, uh, a service provider, right? A company like Accenture, right? So we gave them the requirements, and they say, hey, that's how much it's going to cost, and that's the date, and then you raggle around the country to discuss it, etc. right? And when Agile came 20 years ago, that's from their environment where Agile originally came from. That's why one of the principles of the manifesto is collaboration over contract negotiation. Contract negotiation, what are we talking about? It's because it was created for service providers, right? So uh, can you imagine an internal team discussing a contract with the stakeholder doesn't make much sense, right? It only makes sense if you think about, oh, it's an external service provider, right? That's the environment where things uh, originated. So that's still that, that division between the business and technology, right? When people say, oh, we need to talk about it with the business. We need to get close to the business. Modern product teams, they don't talk like that because, hey, we are already cross-functional. We are already integrated. We are together. It's our business. It's not the business, right? So... And that's the way 
things have always been uh, organized, all being structured. And the challenge is that IT organizations have been optimized for decades to manage projects. Uh, so it's not something that can simply flip a switch. Oh, yeah, now let's focus on outcomes. Let's let's change that. It's a huge leap. Right? There's a huge difference between the way the best uh, uh, teams work and, the mo- and most teams work. Exactly. I think we both share this passion of helping organizations work the way the best teams work, right? And and I think it's exact. It's just like you said, where we've got decades of IT teams being cost centers, being order takers, having work thrown over to them, uh, and they're actually no, not not being any feedback loop. To the business, so it's dysfunctions on both sides. So, the you know, I think my hope uh, is that OKRs, actually, and I've seen this actually happen, where OKRs can actually be transformational in breaking down those silos, right, and changing these the ways of working and helping leaders on both the technology and business side. And ideally, it wouldn't be two different sides, of course. And technology organizations, those tend to be one thing, but actually bring those closer together, move away from those silos. At the same rate, I, and I'd love to hear your experiences on this, I've seen OKRs just just actually be, and you called this, it's, the, it's, it's that uh, Tinkerbell approach, right? Where you sprinkle OKRs, nothing really changes with those silos. And uh, things actually get worse because now people are blaming OKR. You know, they're blaming OKRs for for being part of the problem, not being part of the solution. So, a, I get. Do you see OKRs as a way of as as that profound a tool where you can actually use them to break through those you know two or three decades of of, of silos that were established through these cost centers and through these old models of IT? Uh, and and then B, why do so many organizations fail to actually leverage OKRs in that way? The idea is that what I call the Tinkerbell approach is you take an organization that's using traditional management, traditional approaches, and just sprinkle some OKR on top of it, as if it were some OKR pixie dust, and you're just going to magically turn into Google. Uh, and of course, we have a tendency of trying to uh, force new tools to our, our habits, our ways of working, uh, instead of actually leaning into the new possibilities of the new tools and, uh, and changing how we work. So adopting OKR is never the goal. The goal is to improve performance by changing how you work. So if you're not changing how you work, you're missing the point. And the story I love to tell about, a true story about the Tinkerbell approach is a very large bank where they had a KPI dashboard for many years. And one day to the next chief technology officer uh, to, to simply change the label. So the very next day when people come into the office, instead of KPIs, it says OKRs. Hey, those are OKRs. That's it. They seem to change the label. And that's a true story. Right? And of course, there are many, many more stories like that. Right? Uh, and there's a lot of bad advice online about uh, OKR, which makes it harder. Right? We live in the age of disinformation. Right? People online can't agree that the world, world is round. Can you imagine why would they agree that what a good OKR looks like? Right? So unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation online. And what happens is, originally, when people in Silicon Valley started explaining right, uh, about OKR, was a simple explanation, because, hey, that's how we work. It's natural for them. So if you're coming from traditional enterprise, you're like, hey, that's simple. And it, it, that's why they started just to sprinkle on top of it without realizing, hey, you have to change the whole system. right? So you can't simply take a part of how Google works and apply it to your company. You have to change the other components as well. Right? So that's why it's so hard. Yeah, and Felipe, I also happens to be a bank. This is an experience I had, I think, uh, eight months ago. And the they, they are adopting, and you know, there's executive sponsorship behind this, right up to the CEO and a rather large bank, project management, sorry, product management. 
And so the way that they adopted this is they, and I'm not joking, they, they renamed over 10,000 project managers, product managers. <laughs> so <laughs> even more pixie dust, because it was not just one dashboard. But I think this is exactly what we're seeing, is we're seeing a, a need, and actually a need, I, I love the fact that you came from this, from the, from the people operations side, right? Because we've got people in these organizations who know this is a better way of working, who want to be connected to the mission, who want to be connected to outcomes. There are actually, there's a lot of bottom-up pull for these things, uh, whether it's through, through, method, you know, through learning, through more better tooling. But I've, I've noticed that, that, that there's a lot of desire from people building the technology, wanting to innovate for the customers to adopt these better ways of working. And then I think the challenge is if, is if the, the structure that's put in place by leadership actually is, is this Tinkerbell approach, as, as you've named it. So, and we're, I think we're seeing this across the board. So I think my sense is, again, is OKRs are a chance to change that structure. And if you could just now tell us some of the you know, pitfalls that you're seeing in terms of you know, basically, and I, you touch on so many of these. So I think obviously we're going to link all of your work from your website because I think there's there's such a good catalog there. But if you could touch on sort of, you know some of the misinformation, right? I was I knew when I was reading Measure What Matters that there was something wrong in the back of my mind on on the fact on how a lot of the examples were structured and how I was applying OKRs. I didn't realize till I read your your summary of Measure What Matters, your review, that what was it? Around sixty percent of those examples were activities, not outcomes in terms of how the key results were, were written. So if you could tell us just a little bit about how, because I think it has been overly easy for people wanting to adopt these things for the right reasons to, to fall into wrong, wrong, wrong ways of working or, or just snap back into a remain in, in their existing ways of working. So if you could tell us a bit more about this sort of misinformation and where people can, can go to find the right kind of information. And then if we could touch on again, I think the main thing that we need to, to have leaders do, which is take the right approach. And the right approach truly is about changing the, the, the ways of working. So. So yeah, speak to the misinformation in the first place. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, before getting to that, uh, the the solution uh, to all of this is unlearning, right? So to succeed, we need to unlearn many of the old ways of working, right? And I love the definition of unlearning that comes from my friend Barry O'Reilly. Uh, he defines unlearning as the process to move away from mindsets and behaviors that were effective in the past and now limit our success. I, I know the quote by heart, <laughs> as much as I repeat it over and over and yeah. over again, right? That's, that's the key thing. If you, as a leader, you're not willing to unlearn, you're not, you're going to say this comes from a completely different way of working. This comes from Silicon Valley, uh, startup culture, uh, modern product teams. And you don't understand that to apply it, you have to unlearn the old days of working, you fail. Right? You have to be willing to unlearn. Unlearning takes time. And learning is usually way deeper than you expect, right? So you have to abandon some of some dogmatic approaches. You have to be able to be open to unlearning, right? Because there are things that were useful 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, but they don't, no longer represent the state of art. They no longer represent how the modern uh, ways of work. They no longer represent how top performance teams work. Okay, so that, that's that's key, and so. The thing you need to understand is that if you look at throughout OKR history, it has always been about giving people autonomy and clarity of purpose, always. Way back to uh, Andy Grove, CEO of Intel, mm -hmm. even before that to, to Peter Drucker, right? It was always about that. And there's a story that I, I like to tell which helps understand what we're talking about. Very few, few people know this, but the founders of Google, Amazon, and Apple they were all coached by the same person at the formative years of each one of those companies, right? Uh, the name of the coach was Bill Campbell. 
He was ca called the coach of Silicon Valley, where he was, he avoided the limelight. He, he was, so many people outside of Silicon Valley that haven't heard about Campbell. And there's a great story about Campbell that helps us understand the that shared philosophy that he taught Amazon, Apple, Google, and many other companies in Silicon Valley. He, Bill Campbell was the CEO of the software company Intuit at the time, and they had hired a few product managers from banks, again, banks. And he was in a meeting with the product manager and a team of engineers, and the product manager started to list some features. Hey, I want you to develop this feature, that feature, that other feature. And then Bill Campbell jumped out and shouted, if you ever tell an engineer at Intuit which features you want, I'm going to throw you out on the street because that's not how we work here, right? What we do is we teach them the context. We teach them who the, the customer is. We teach them the customer needs, the business needs, right? And they will come up with way better solutions than you ever will by telling what to do, right? And the idea is not letting the engineers do whatever they want, but again, giving them, explain the context, right? Teach them what you want, what you expect from them, right? And if you think about it, that's the direct opposite of how traditional IT project-based service provider order taker model, right? Uh, so that's the weird okay from from that type of culture. If you read Andy Grove says the same thing over and over and over again, that's the same message. So it's about giving people instead of giving them solution, something to implement, you, you explain the problem they're trying to solve or an opportunity, right? So instead of giving them a list of requirements, you give them a business need or a customer need to address, right? That's the main idea. And the language we use today is the language of outcomes, right? That's the language that the product world has adopted, right? That language comes from nonprofits. Because if you think that measuring value is hard in, in technology, try to measure value in a nonprofit, right? So uh, the idea of outcome planning is that you focus on the difference you're trying to make and you never lose sight of it. That's the point, right? And that's the type of culture we want, where we agree on the difference we're trying to make, we agree on what we're trying to achieve and why that's important, and then we're going to test different ideas to help us actually achieve that outcome, actually make that difference we're trying to make. Because we all know that some of the projects we do make a difference, some do not. So the key is not losing sight of what you're trying to achieve. So important to talk about that before, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation, et cetera. We need to understand, hey, what, why are we trying to achieve and why is this misinformation right so bad? Yeah, and you're just reminding me right now how profound for me it was reading Drucker's work on nonprofits and strategic planning and outcome planning at that point, right? I think it is uh, this is exactly what we're trying to achieve. And somehow we've, you know, we have people who are mission-oriented, who want to drive outcomes, and the planning systems in place, whether they're you know waterfall planning systems, project management, or just misapplied OKRs and, and KPIs and strategic planning, are actually completely separating them from this. Now, the thing that I've noticed, and I think that the thing that's that's been so fundamental to me around uh, some of the the schools of thought around DevOps, let's say, right? DevOps was about flow feedback and and continual learning. Right? That was the, those were the principles. Of course, the way it's been adopted by many organizations, it's been around just continuous delivery pipelines. But really, those were the principles, and so. What I've certainly noticed is that when you've got these fast feedback loops, right? When you've applied the theory of constraints to your feedback loop and you've actually got 
a feedback loop back to all the key stakeholders because there are some some people who in very large organizations who are closer to customer outcomes, right? People in large organizations who are closer to just needing to build the infrastructure uh, to make sure that, that that the software can run and scale and so on. So the I think the thing that we've noticed over the last decade or two is that the more that you shorten those feedback loops, the almost the easier it is. That, a you know you need to break through silos to do it for the in, in the first place. You can c- actually connect people to outcomes because they're part of the feedback loop. The feedback loop is is not something that happens six months later when you're measuring some some business metric, but everyone's bought into that feedback loop. So I think the way that you describe this again with another great metaphor is the is the is the wedding cakes and the cupcakes. And if you could just take us a bit through that and how you see that enabling the path to to connecting people to outcomes, to connecting engineering development teams to outcomes. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, take us through that. Yeah, sure. The, the, uh, I use analogies to think that in the traditional approach, uh, in the old ways of working, organizations, they spend like 12, 18 months building a big wedding cake, right? So you get it approved and then you work and you ship it 18 months down the road. In the new way of working, instead of building that wedding cake, teams are trying to sell a cupcake every week or so, right? So every week we try to sell cupcakes, we are learning from it, and we're course-correcting. And that's crucial because you learn, you measure, right? And you course-correct. So it's it's not simply incremental, but it's iterative. So you iterate. So you learn from it and you measure. And if you think about it uh, from selling a cupcake every week, think about how many things I can experiment with, how many ideas I can test, and how many different variables, right? I can experiment with to see, hey, what's the we're trying to achieve, right? What you actually work, what customers actually want. You can test flavors, ingredients, sizes, uh, toppings, colors. There's a gazillion things that you can test, right? And they are always learning, and then they are building the learning, course correcting, and then adjusting, right? The expression people use in Silicon Valley is nail it before you scale it. So you de-risk first, right, and then you actually scale it after you've tested it, right? Uh, Marty Kagan from uh, SAPG, uh, he said one of the principles right, he defines is that people, product teams, will tackle risk up front. So that's the idea of the cupcake approach. Because in the all the working, all the risks are after we ship the thing 18 months down the road. In the new ways of working, we tackle risk, risk up front. So you're always de-risking, you're always learning, right? And if it's if proven that you that won't work, you can just kill the thing and move on, right? Because you learn and you avoid all that investment that would, right? So those short feedback loops are crucial, right? And that's a core concept of uh, the new way of working. And that's why flow metrics are so important, right? Um, worked with many, many, many uh, enterprise organizations of the years. And many of them, they have such a, the, their, their lead time is so long that they realize, yeah, I want to achieve an outcome at the end of the quarter, but my lead time is 100 days, so it's impossible because it takes 100 days to ship something. At the same time, people were already say at the DevOps stage, you're, they're shipping things every day, right? Several times a day. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they're testing ideas faster. So uh, one of the, what I, what I call enabling capabilities of using focusing on outcomes and uh, using OKR is having a tech environment that enables experimentation. So unless you have that, unless people can, uh, teams can deploy with confidence, they can actually uh, have short feedback loops, they have a short enough uh, lead time and so on and so forth, they won't be able to experiment because if every time you deploy something, everything breaks, 
yeah, experimenting will get will be way way harder. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's two parts of this, right? Because what I've noticed is in some organizations, they've put so much focus on, and I completely agree that that environment that enables fast feedback and experimentation is critical, which is why DevOps is often so transformational. But alone, it's not enough because if, if all we're measuring is uh, our ability to quickly deploy things, we're not necessarily measuring whether that's driving an outcome. And so I think I want to come back to this because I think it gets back to measurement, but you said something so important right now, Felipe, that I found, I've actually found so effective in my discussions ever, ever since I heard you say it, is that if you're time to value, so basically lead time for things that, that, that have been asked for by customers, asked for, let's say, by business partners, or flow time in terms of how quickly they're actually delivered to create that feedback cycle, uh, it's just a subset of lead time. If that is over, and this is what we're seeing, I'm, I'm seeing everywhere, because we measure this, right, at, at TaskDot, if it's over 90 days, you can't apply OKRs effectively because your feedback cycle will be too long. So can you, I, I think to me, it's, it's basically as simple as that, which is to create those conditions that you need to, to get that autonomy, that clarity of purpose and have people bought in and actually delivering faster and understanding whether uh, what they delivered drove that outcome, whether it, it drove retention, active usage, net promoter scores, whatever, however uh, we're looking at, at measuring uh, this, we need to shorten that flow time. We need to shorten how quickly we can deliver value. And so I know if you could reflect on this, that by far the number one thing that, that I encounter is in terms of organization, well, number one is organizations need to basically measure their improvement of daily work, not just work. So they need to measure where they are on that journey from building wedding cake after wedding cake and again, having feedback in 18 months to actually be, being able to, to build those cupcakes and have that fast feedback feedback on whether it's MVPs, simple, lovable, complete, whatever, whatever measure used, there's ways we, you know, this is, this is a solved problem, right? There's ways of building the, those cupcakes and measuring how those cupcakes are doing before you scale the, the cupcakes into wedding cakes. So uh, if you could just speak to that, how do you see my point of view on this is, again, we need to measure that reduction in time to value, time to outcomes. I should say, you would call it time to outcomes, time to value, <laughs> to make sure that that the teams get that feedback you know, within the quarter. By the way, and on for our own uh, product development teams, I get very concerned if that feedback cycle, the flow time is under a sprint. It's it, Sorry, it's over a sprint. It's over two weeks. Because of course the, the teams work on faster cadences than quarters as well. So they can learn during the quarter and learn in time for that next OKR planning cycle and the next, the next release planning cycle. But you know, what, what has been your experience with this? Because I think one of the fundamental problems I see everywhere is we've got these, basically these flow times are 240 days, 120 days, and just usually over 90 days. Yeah, so that's going back to the, the idea that the way the best teams work is completely different than the way most teams work. If you think of modern product team, they have uh, flow time in days or even yeah. hours, right? Uh, they instrument the product, so they have, if you want to call it telemetry, observability, whatever term you want to use, they can measure the software they're working on, the product they're working on. So they can measure if people are using it, doing it, buying it, whatever, right? They understand the metrics. They mm -hmm. are close to the customer needs and the business needs, right? They work together as a cross-functional team, so you have product managers, engineers, designers working together every day. They know how to run experiments. They know how to test ideas. So they have access to the all the modern techniques that we're using, right? If you compare that to a enter traditional enterprise IT, it's the opposite. It's usually uh, they don't instrument. They have very low observability or telemetry, if you will. Uh, they have very long flow times. Oh, 90 days, 100 days, right? very common. 
they don't they are very far away from the customer they're very far away from the business they don't understand they don't know how to measure things they never measure anything they have very limited experience in metrics and measurement right uh, they so it's a com- it's completely opposite right so definitely if you have a flow time of say over 90 days using a quarterly OKR is impossible yeah right usually what i recommend is in those cases let's start with a six month OKR right let's make sure that one of our enterprise or at least BU level uh, result is to reduce <laughs> the flow time right so uh, a useful way to measure it that i've used in the past is the number of teams with a flow time of under x days yeah exactly right? Because people are coming from different places, very different environments. Yeah. Context matters. You can compare teams. Yeah. But what you want as an organization is how many teams you have in the whole enterprise that have a, say, a flow time under seven days. Yeah. And then you can decide if, hey, yeah. And, of course, 10 is not, seven is not a magic number, but we want to measure it in days, not weeks or that, and definitely not months. And so you do under something like seven days, how many teams do you have in that context? And then after that, each team can decide if you do it to improve it more or not. Right? Uh, but that has to be a almost an enterprise level priority because yeah. if you're trying to oh, we're trying to do a digital transformation and you're not focusing on that, again you're kind of missing the point. Because <laughs> if you want data be data driven, you want to make based on data experiments, etc. But your environment is not allowing people to do that. One way to think about it is you're competing using the tools and techniques of 30 years ago. You're you m- many most IT organizations. They develop software the way the Silicon Valley developed, like in the nineties. <laughs> so, the, the way that microchips were developed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But uh, it's been a while, yeah. right? So, so uh, and, and that's the, the big problem, right? So definitely creating that environment where that enables experimentation is key, right? This is one of the, the enabling capabilities that you almost have to have. And so, Felipe, you surprised me just now because, and this is now obvious again when once you say it, but not obvious before you say it. Um, so, you will tell organizations just to have a six month OKR. I've been stuck again in, in the measurement. There's only there's only quarterly and annual, but you'll actually go ahead and say, let's just start with you, six months. The thing is, you you can have whatever cadences you want, right? Uh, so you can have multi year OKRs, can have annual OKRs, quarterly OKRs, whatever. Okay. The thing is that quarterly OKRs is first of all is the natural rhythm of. Uh, the finance, the finance cycle, so it helps yeah. being connected to the budget, etc. Right. Uh, also, if you think, if you want to focus on outcomes, right, uh, a quarter is usually enough time to think big and work small on task things, right? So usually, you, you, so the idea is you plan, right, around quarters, but you ship every day, right? So again, another one from from Barry. The idea is you want to uh, think big, start small, and learn fast. Right, so the the quarterly cycle allows you to think big. Yeah, yeah, that's those are the outcomes you want to achieve in the quarter. But start small and work small, short iterations, testing different ideas, the cupcake approach. Right, so that's what quarterly is usually where we begin. But uh, you can use a six month OKR if you want. Right, and usually enterprise where in the beginning, if you have a very long lead time, you ha- you kind of have to do that. Otherwise. Your OKR is just going to be ship this thing, ship that other thing, etc. But the six month OKR is just a transition thing, right? You shouldn't be doing that over time. Right? That should be, you should change that, right? If you're working in software, I say. Because yeah. uh, another thing is, uh, I work with, say, retail retail organizations where 
the supply chain organization start to use OKR. And then we have things like building a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you don't do that in a quarter, right? So you have to fit your natural rhythm, right? But for a software organization, uh, you have to understand that the power uh, of short feedback loops, the importance of it, and you have to understand that the moment you adopt a six-month OKR, you're kind of letting yourself off the hook, mm-hmm. right? So that's something you want to avoid usually, right? Um, I've also seen some organizations adopt a four-month OKR cycle, right? Uh, which is usually a sign that there's something wrong. Okay. okay. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, th- there's no causation involved. It's just a series yeah. of patterns that I've yeah. seen, right? But I've never seen. Every time I see an organization using a four-month OKR cycle, if you go, if you ask them, why do you do that? Oh, because planning takes so long. Yeah. So instead of solving the planning problem, they change the cycle, which is not the best way to do it, right? If you plan around outcomes, if you have product teams, things are more stable because they have a clear mission, right? Each team has a purpose, right? So if you have a persistent model, like John Cutler likes to, to call it, have a clear strategy with that persistent model, which each team has a clear purpose, right? It's much, much faster to, to set OKRs. I've seen people do create OKRs in two hours going into the second cycle because, hey, it's persistent. It's stable. We are working on the same purpose. It's the same domain, right? So the next one, hey, that's in two hours, you do it because it, it's more about updating than actually a do-over. So, again, the usual way to start with, is with annual OKRs for the organization or for business units and quarterly OKRs for, for teams. But you may have to customize it, right? For exceptions. Yeah, it is, Philippe. To me, it's amazing. I think you know, you speak to this quite a bit. Where modern product management is makes this so much easier to adopt OKRs. I've seen this. If you have persistent product value streams and teams, you give them that autonomy. They can set these things quarterly quite easily. It, it really does does get easy. If you don't have the persistence, you're rearranging teams, you're reassigning people to multiple things. It, it doesn't work. You're just kind of launching almost and you feels like a new planning process every time you do this every quarter so yeah yeah if i could build on what what they said oh yeah using modern product management makes it much easier actually it's it's that it's impossible because it it, like it's a piece it's coming this comes together right so you're taking a a a tool that comes from the modern product management approach right Mm -hmm. again experimentation uh, cupcake approach measurement uh, instrumentation, autonomous teams, cross-functional teams, all of that. Autonomy, purpose, all of that. And you're taking one piece out of it and say, yeah, I'll be using the, only this piece here. And yeah, so if you're thinking about a car, I'm taking this I don't know, piece out of the BMW, I'm putting my in my Ford. Yeah, it kind of doesn't fit, right? <laughs> you have to bring the rest of the system together, right? Because you can do that. And that's why in the cupcake approach, people completely destroy OKR because, yeah, so they try to fit it to the way they work instead of using it as a leverage, as a forcing function to change how you work, right? So, uh, again, many, many organizations, they fall into uh, the trap of using OKR name only because they don't understand. They either don't understand modern how modern product teams work. They don't understand all of that. Uh, and they're still calling it a digital transformation, right? That that's the, the 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 big challenge, right? It's a journey, right? You won't get here overnight, 
but every quarter you can improve, right? And you can, if you focus on, say, reducing the flow time, you can drastically improve that from one quarter to the next, and then the next one to get better, and then get better. And next quarter, people will, will be able to start experimenting. If they learn more about the customers, and they'll learn about metrics, so always improving, right? Uh, what I usually teach people is that OCAS can be imperfect, and they will be imperfect in the beginning, but we are going to take baby steps toward better measurement and better OKRs over time. Because one thing is, I understand where I'm headed, I understand the difference I'm trying to make, I understand the change in organization we're trying to achieve, and my OKRs are imperfect because hey, that's what I can do now. A second thing is being lazy and doing the cupcake, the Tinkerbell approach. And yeah, let's keep working the way we always did, right? Oh, let's just rename 10,000 people. And yeah, now they're product managers, right? So, and, and that's the challenge. But if you decide, hey, yeah, we're doing our digital transformation. We want to work like the way those companies work. You should actually do it, right? Instead of just thinking, oh, yeah, we have squads and uh Post-it notes and whatever, right? So, uh, and one thing that the, the key is that we didn't talk about it is that as part of outcome planning, we need to bring a precise and actionable language, right? Because the whole idea is ensuring everybody uses the same language, right? And changing the language we use is key because otherwise we fall back into old habits, right? So if you look at my material from, say, five years ago, I used the term value in the past. Right, and what I learned is uh, I started writing about OKR and Azure in 2015, and I did my first uh, talk at uh, Azure 2016. And many people started saying, "Yeah, I know what's value. Value is I show code to the stakeholder." No, that's not. So we need to change the language. That's why the whole community adopted the language of outcomes. And instead of using the term value, which is fuzzy open interpretation is not measurable. Outcome planning is a specific definition, right? So it's a term of art, meaning it has a specific uh, definition. That's what we're going to use. Okay? So an outcome, outcomes are the measurable beneficial effects you want to create. So what are the benefits you want to create and how you're going to measure it? And it can be those measurable beneficial effects can be for your organization, can be for the customer, or it can be for another employee. Mm-hmm. So I can be a, a platform team that I'm developing, a tool that's going to be used either by, I don't know, people who work at the branches at the bank or another development team, another product team. And that's totally fine, right? So it can have different audiences for your, your product, right? And the same, exactly the same concepts apply. You can use the same techniques, right? The same ideas of measurement and learning and product, etc. right? But when you start talking about outcomes as the match beneficial facts, you need to make a distinction between outcomes and activities. Activities are what you do. Projects, programs, plan, uh, activities, epics. So activities are what you do. An outcome is that difference you made, the measure beneficial effect you made because of what you did. And then you start to define what you want to achieve and not lose sight of that, right? And that's the real power. Because many people are still trying to measure value. Value is not measurable. Value is useful as a high-level concept, right? So you can say value streams. You can say delivery value. I don't have a problem with that. But on a day-to-day, oh, let's measure value. I've seen many organizations, oh, we have a 
this is our business value measurement. How can you measure that? <laughs> it's not a single metric, right? So and learning the idea that you should measure value is part of the, the solution, right? Uh, instead, talking about the outcomes you want to achieve, bringing that new language is important. Yeah, Philippe, I could not agree more. And I actually want to talk about these these buckets of activities and, and key results and objectives. And uh, whenever you say this, you know, I think it's so important that we adopt this outcome language. I think you know, value streams about driving outcomes. They're the, in, on their own, just like anything we deliver, any activity that we do, it, if it's not rooted in the outcome and in, in a measurable outcome, why are we doing it? Why are we just rowing faster in the wrong direction? So now, annoyingly, on the top right of the flow framework, I put business results. It was it actually said, I, and I agonized over everyone in the flow framework, um, but uh, it was business outcomes for the longest time. I said, okay, well, it's key results. I better make it results because I fundamentally believe in, <laughs> in OKRs. But, but I think it will evolve into, into outcomes at some point. So Yeah, but, yeah. Well, oh, one ahead. of the reasons that nonprofits use outcomes, because results, you can say something, oh, this is the deliverable that resulted from our project, right? Because you can yeah. use results in that sense as well, right? This is the result of our work, yeah. right? Uh, we shift this thing. So that's why the, the results can be misused as well, right? Everything can be misused, right? But uh, so you need a new language to change the conversation, right? This is, I think, some of the crux of where these things break down in sort of large-scale transformations, again, working against these silos. So I'll give, we talk a lot about banks. So, uh, a CEO of a of a global bank that I'm working with, he's you know he's he's behind making the organization technology innovator, bringing these new ways of working. He's actually doing just amazing things. I'm I'm amazed that the CEO is involved because that's how important. And this is back to Christian Diotti. He said he actually mentioned this, this. This was fascinating to me is that CEOs need to get involved because they're the only ones who can really break through ways of working. If lines of business are structured in a certain way, and and you know there is no chance to create that common cloud platform, whatever is needed to provide the right technological environment for fast feedback and innovation. That might need to come from the CEO, right? That and the you know the way that budgeting and planning is done might need to come from the CEO. So this this individual actually I think is created the right approach, put in place OKRs as as and and some of the, you know the key ideas behind the shift to product, agile and DevOps principles. And then what? And then there's the, it's interesting because the at that level, at the level of the business and the lines of the, the various lines of business, the outcomes are really clear. The outcomes that they want, having to do with market share, having to do with you know, great systems of engagement, uh, digital and digital experiences that that their users love and their customers love, and such. And and in this case, actually, you know, making sure that the, the business banking helped lift this particular actually region out of COVID because that was a, a key thing and, and improved the economy. So these were just amazing aspirational objectives that were that were set forth. And then, of course, I think I often see happen, I imagine you often see happen, is that when they, those get translated to that next layer down, of course, there are problems without persistent teams and without enough autonomy of that next layer down, things get translated to activities. And I've actually personally struggled with this where you've got these three-year, these one-year objectives, they're very meaningful, you've got very meaningful ways of, of measuring the outcomes. And then they have, you've got such long feedback cycles. They're such lagging indicators because, you know, you've got some fast indicators like net promoter scores, but revenue, market share, retention, those tend to be lagging indicators. So in these, you know, and I think you've got such a sort of disciplined and rigorous way of thinking about these, these, these trees and these you know, cascades. And in the end, what is a, a graph of outcomes that the organization needs to be bought into, seeing this challenge in terms of turning those, those business high-level ones uh, into sort of actionable outcomes at the various levels of the organization and not falling back into what often happens, which is they get turned into these waterfall roadmaps, 
is the bottom line. I, I see top level business OKRs being turned into low level activity roadmaps. So have you learned how to stop that from happening? Yeah, yeah, sure. That, that's that's the, the, the old way, right, of working. So uh, we need to understand that, first of all, our brains are wired, our brains evolved over a million years to behave in a certain way, right? So our brains are wired to think about activities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, our brains are wired to look about the fastest solution, about the fastest thing, right? Whenever you see a problem, right, your instinctive reaction of the vast majority of folks is to start, okay, what can we do? Who can do it? What's the due date? So you start discussing projects yeah. right away. Mm-hmm. Right? You never stop discussing what are we trying to achieve here, how we measure be successful, etc. right? So that's why I love the quote from uh, Ash Warrior, love the problem, not your solution. Life's too short to build something nobody wants. So we have to fight our natural tendency to think about activities. Mm-hmm. That's why outcome planning is so important. Okay? And so the first thing we do is to learn to manage separate buckets. Okay? So you're going to put uh, your OKRs separately from the activities. right? So uh, the idea is that the objective describes the problem or, or opportunity you're working on. The results describe the outcomes you want to achieve, the measurable beneficial effects. That's the second bucket. On the third bucket, you're going to put your activities. What are our options? What ideas do we have? So we can test different ideas, different hypotheses. So you can think of that as the idea bucket, right? So if there's one thing that I've learned over all those years is that if you allow people to mix things and, oh, I have outcomes and, and activities together, you end up with a to-do list, yeah. right? You, you, you won't improve. So being disciplined in separating them, it's... What I tell people is, okay, if in the beginning all you have is projects, okay, you're saying that I have zero OKRs and you have a big idea bucket. It's better to start that way because it's uncomfortable. Because <laughs> it forces you to change. Because, hey, I have zero OKRs. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. Because <laughs> it forces you to start to discussing, hey, why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? What success looks like? If we succeed with this thing, what would change? So there are several different techniques that we t- teach people on how to convert uh, existing projects, how to uh, figure out the, the outcome they want, right? But going back to the enterprise planning, the challenge we have is not only our brains are wired in a certain way, which is not to think about outcomes, but all the business processes that we've been using for 50 years are wired around, uh, we're playing around projects as well, right? If you open the capital expenditure page at Wikipedia, it actually says capital expenditure process is about ranking a series of projects and analyzing the return and actually deciding which project you're going to work on. <laughs> that's the that's from Wikipedia, right? Telling us how to do budget. Yeah. Right? So that's how core it is. Yeah. Right. So and, and if you go say how strategy planning is usually taught is executives set a bunch of uh enterprise goals or enterprise priorities, right? All those beautiful things they're describing. And then the next step is defining a series of strategic initiatives or projects, right? So usually what happens is at the very top, you have outcomes, things like revenue, improving customer satisfaction, retention, whatever. And then suddenly you have something like implement Salesforce CRM. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And then delivering that project becomes the goal. And I don't care about making a difference. I care about shipping the thing at the date, at the time, within the budget. People lose purpose, right? They lose autonomy, and then executives complain, why can't we innovate? Well, 
because it's structural. So you have to, even if you're implementing Salesforce, yeah, okay, what are you trying to achieve with Salesforce? Oh, we want to I don't know, reduce call handling time at the call center. Okay, so Salesforce is a two, right? You can still use Salesforce, but there's a gazillion different ways to implement Salesforce. Using Salesforce is a, con- a constraint leaders give to the teams, right? Okay, you'll be using Salesforce. After that, it's up to you, yeah. right? <laughs> you'll be using Salesforce. Of course, you have a budget as a constraint. You have a few constraints, right? But you have the autonomy to achieve the outcome given the constraint, right? Stephen Bungay, the author of an amazing book uh, titled uh, The Art of Action. I strongly recommend the book, The Art of Action. He told me that uh, the role of a leader is to make the decisions only she or he can make, right? So we'll be using Salesforce or we're doing whatever else for CRM. That's a decision that has to be taken, right? Ideally, uh, at least at the business unit level, right? That still goes in the activity bucket though, right? But yeah. No, no, but you make a decision about which CRM to use. Yeah. That's a decision. But the team, how to implement it Mm -hmm. to achieve it, the outcome we want, that's up to the teams, right? So the CEO or the CIO, whatever, can choose it's, it's Salesforce. But after that, it's up to the teams how can you leverage Salesforce to achieve the outcome we want? Because we we have a business case saying that we invest in Salesforce because we want to achieve those outcomes here. Whatever you put in your in your in your business case, hell, that's your OKR. And now the team has the autonomy with the details of implementation around Salesforce. So one way to explain it, because sometimes when you tell people give teams a, a problem instead of a solution, people understand that they have 100% autonomy. They can do whatever they want. That is not Correct. The idea is that you can have constraints, right? Uh, any tech, any organization has constraints, right? So, for example, at Google, you can have, oh, this team is working on Gmail. So, yeah, it has to be Gmail. You're kind of the Gmail product team. You have a second team. Yeah, you're working on what's next after Gmail, new mail app, whatever. And we have another team. Hey, what's next after messaging? So, they have different levels of freedom. How many degrees of freedom do you have? Right, but it's not about telling everyone at Google do whatever you want. That's not the point. Otherwise, you don't have a strategy. Right? You don't have alignment, etc. But it's about understanding how many degrees of freedom you have, and always letting the specifics up to the teams. So it can be Salesforce. Salesforce is just a platform we use. There's a technology we use. Again, there's a million different ways to implement Salesforce. So Salesforce is constrained, and you still have to achieve. Uh, those are the outcomes we'll be achieving together. Right. Uh, another analogy that's useful, remember the story about Thomas Edison that he tried to, a hundred different ways to make a light bulb. Mm-hmm. And hey, you failed a hundred ways. No, I learned a hundred ways that won't work. I'll soon learn the way that we work, will work. That's a great analogy of testing different versions, different iterations of the light bulb, right? So a light bulb is not a solution because you have the freedom to test a hundred different versions of the light bulb. But hey, I need to use something to use electricity to to provide light. Yeah, that's the kind of light bulb, right? But you still have the freedom of testing several different iterations of that or several different iterations of the cupcake. Hey, you're selling cupcakes. I'm not telling you the flavor, the ingredients, the size. I'm just telling it's a cupcake, right? So you still have several degrees of freedom and autonomy to the teams. Does it make sense? Completely makes sense, Felipe. And I think, you know, I, I certainly learned this the hard way, right? I used to over-constrain our 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 product value streams, right? So I will, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I think that this 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 kind of decision-making at the right levels, I will no longer be involved in planning OKRs for any product value stream or any department. 
just the company annual and quarterly ones so that they have full autonomy over those and how they drive the, the company annual and, and, and quarterly OKRs? Yeah, I would, I would adjust that. I would recommend adjusting that because uh, we tend to go to the streams. Yeah. So it's either 100% top down, 100% bottoms up. It's a conversation. Right. Right. So there's a great article on how uh, Slack launched a new product. And there's, they have a graph. It's a U-shaped graph of the amount of time that the CEO spent with the team, right? So in the beginning, setting the vision, discussing the OKR, discussing the, what we're trying to achieve, very high, lots of right. time from the CEO. Then it drops to, almost to zero. Yeah. And at the end, checking the quality, measuring, discussing, right? Auditing, the, right? So you set the vision, right? Agree on what we're trying to achieve. They have the autonomy on the how. And, and at the end, you come back and say, hey, did it work? Let me see it. Let me test it. Let me... Right, so ensure quality, ensure that the experience makes sense. So that's a great analogy, right? A great uh, explanation. Uh, one of the leadership principles of Amazon is that leaders they audit the details. I don't kind of like the, the term audit, but the idea is that they understand what's going on and they challenge the teams. Right, the teams have a high degree of agency and autonomy, but it's about the leadership to challenge them and ask questions. Yep. Right, because. Uh, Think about the Socratic method, right? You're asking questions and you're helping them learn and develop. Just mm, the thing is, you have to adjust your style of leadership to how ready the teams are, right? the level of readiness from the teams and the fluency, the fluency they have, right? Andy Grove, former CEO of uh, Intel and uh, the part of OKR, right? Uh, he, he called it, you have to be depending on the context, right? So for example, uh, if you have a marketing executive that's very senior, understand everything on how to market desktop, yeah, go ahead. But now if you hired a, a marketing executive from another company that never worked with desktop text, before or never worked with space before, she may know a lot about marketing, but she doesn't know a lot about your space or your product. Yeah. So even a very senior executive may need coaching in the beginning because in that context, she's not ready, right? So you have to adjust your, your leadership style to the context of each team. So I'm sure if you have several product teams, you have a team that you know, hey, with a five-minute explanation, they just do the, the yeah. right thing. <laughs> and you have another team that unless I talk to them like every day, they're going to mess up because they are learning, right? So uh, I, I like to explain like, let's say you have a two-year-old, a 10-year-old, and an 18-year-old. Like, yeah, you kind of know, right? <laughs> Where the degrees of freedom that you can give each one, right? But it depends on the context, right? So it's not about not being there. It's about asking questions, setting the stage, and adjusting to what they need from you. Yeah, Philippe, I think that's such great guidance because yeah, I, I certainly see this, right? You've got these different product value streams, each with a sort of different amount of learning that's needed, a different amount of experience within the organization and the market and the rest. And yeah, I don't know, but like I actually find that Dave Snowden, he'll, he'll be a, an upcoming guest on the podcast. It, it, Kinevin is just amazing for this, right? Because if you've got highly complex or chaotic parts of your organization, they might need that and, or you know, very bringing new and highly uncertain things to market. You're saying adjust your planning, your inspection and, and creation. I guess the, the thing is, I've been try, always trying to lean away from helping teams create the OKRs, but of course the inspection is, is an amazing thing about them because you've got the, the, this very good cadence. But you're saying uh, th there are those cases where being more collaborative and more involved for even senior leaders on things that might be require faster sense making and more uncertainty is, is reasonable. Yeah, definitely. So going back to checking the quality, for example, right? 
Gibson Bureau used to be a VP of product from Netflix. He tells a, an amazing story in Netflix. Uh, he was a, a new uh, product executive at Netflix. And uh, Reed Hastings, the, the CEO, right, he would go into the product and actually make send emails. Hey, I was checking in. I, was, I tried to do this, and it was kind of weird. And Because uh, he was kind of checking, right? <laughs> and he was, at the same time, teaching Gibbs how to lead, right? Because, hey, this is... Because... So, like auditing the details, so being concerned and being down there mm-hmm. with, right? The checking and teaching folks, right? Hey, this is important, right? It's not about do whatever you want, but of course, over time, you can you adapt your your style, but always checking the details and hey, is this what we care about? Is this this is important, right? So, and again, Andy Grove, delegation is not abdication. Right. right? To delegate is not to abdicate. So it's you and you. Right, so you're still the CEO. It's about adjusting your 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 leadership style. Right, uh, Netflix calls it leading with intent, not control. Right, so the idea of uh, intent-based leadership. Right, but also includes checking. But hey, how did it go? Let me check. Let's check the details. Right, uh, that's important as well, because uh, a big part of uh, the role of, of as a leader is to develop your team. That's probably priority number number one. Right. So simply, hey, the let it go approach, that's not the point, right? It's understanding what to do, what not to do, and creating a safe environment where people can ask questions and try different things. But again, being able to challenge the team in a positive way, right? And asking questions, hey, can you explain me the rationale behind that? Because an example, real example, I was working with... with, uh, another bank, but this bank is actually doing a, a great uh, a job. And the team was was doing the okay checking, so they're doing every week checking. And the director was, was attaining that checking, right? And then they were showing the numbers and they were comparing the the customer service done by the bot, right? There's a bot with tracks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they're measuring the percentage of customer requests that were solved by the bot, right? That, that's one key result. And the other one is the percentage of requests that were solved by a human in the first attempt. And she looked at the data said, the data is showing that the bot solves more things than the human. That data is wrong. And then the team was like, we're like, what? And they looked at the data. Oh, yeah, the data is wrong. <laughs> Definitely wrong because that's impossible, right? Our technology is not that good yet. So that's the type of thing that a leader needs to do, right? Hey, how this number doesn't make sense. Or challenge it, why did you choose that metric? Why not another metric? Right? Asking questions, leading with questions, it's very important, right? Uh, and it's hard. It's a huge uh, shift, right, on how we lead, on how we manage, but it's that's how you get the full potential of your team, right? That's how you allow people to flourish, allow people to actually uh, deliver uh, uh, extraordinary results, right? So it requires a major. Uh, uh, transformation. With my team, I, I struggle with the same things as everyone else, right? Because sometimes you want to say things in 30 seconds and not so sorry that was not clear and have to take the time to write things. And and then as I start writing, like the, the briefing, let's discuss what we're trying to achieve. As I start to write, say, hey, I haven't thought about that. Hmm. There's a lot of details I haven't thought about. So <laughs> there's no, no way they could do that alone, right? Because we haven't agreed on what we're trying to achieve. So it's a huge shift. It requires us to learn lots and lots of things, but it's extremely powerful. 
right? And it's a journey that every quarter you can improve. There's a step change every quarter, right? Mm-hmm. People that are actually dedicated to doing that, every quarter gets better and better and better and better. The thing is, know where you're getting to, know, understand the change you're trying to make, and never lose sight of that, right? And keep, just keep doing that. You see the the benefits right away. That that's awesome, Philippe. That's such amazing guidance. Any, I think that was an amazing conclusion <laughs> to this as well. So, any any uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, we, we didn't talk about the the the, the bad advice, but uh, we have uh, online. We can just link to to the, yes. the article. There are many articles about that because uh, it's very important about understanding what we're trying to achieve. Right? Why focusing on outcomes is so important? Why then actually, as long as people understand, there's a lot of bad advice online, and it's not about OKR. It's a, a, allowing people to shift from projects to outcomes, right? Uh, and OK, just a two for doing that. I think that's the most important message, right? And then if you realize that, yeah, you can see that yeah, this advice here doesn't make sense because this is clearly an activity or that other thing here, is, this is not measurable, right? So I think that's the, the most important message. Excellent. Thank you so much, Felipe. We'll link all those materials. I highly encourage people to, to read them because I had about 18 more questions for Felipe that we did not get to. So uh, maybe on another podcast, but for now, uh, Google for Felipe Castro. Uh, check out these links. And uh, uh, thank you so much, Felipe. That was, that was amazing. Thanks for having me. That was great. A huge thank you to Felipe for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtag SmithPlus1 or Project to Product. You can reach out to Felipe on Twitter at MeetFelipe via LinkedIn, or you can check out his website, FelipeCastro.com. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all offered proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, and until next time.